Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Bereson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. So this, this week is going to be a very interesting and important one for parents who are uh, uh, notably very worried about digital media and their kids. So many parents, caregivers, and teachers are becoming increasingly concerned about the impact of all sorts of media on their kids and teens. Uh, so beyond the influence of books, movies, and TV, many worry about the role of digital media, of apps, social media, and video games on the social, emotional, and behavioral development of their kids. One way to help kids process media in an emotionally healthy way is to make sure they're not just passive viewers, but engaged and aware of what they're doing. And now today we have a super expert. We're, uh, our special guest to help us think more about this is Dr. Michael Robb, who's Senior Director of Research for Common Sense Media. He's been involved in research and educational outreach on issues involving media and kids for over 20 years. And his work has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, and in professional journals galore. Uh, so welcome, Michael. Thank you very much for having me here, and I hope I can alleviate some of the concerns parents may be having by the end of this uh, interview. Me too, <laughs> <laughs> because we get, we get swamped <laughs> with, with questions and concerns. Uh, but before we, we begin the discussion, uh, let's have our weekly check-in. So how's, been, how's this week been for you, Khadija? This week was a busy week. Um, but it was a nice week because my son came home from college yesterday, and so it's always nice to have him home. Um, and so looking forward to, to spending the holidays with him. How was your week, Dean? It's been strange. Um, my or half of my family basically did this elaborate quarantine procedures and PCR so that they could spend um, uh, some time together in Vermont, and um, uh, I. Uh, was not able to go, so I am home alone with my new puppy, <laughs> and that's pretty, pretty bizarre. I mean, it's I don't I don't think I've been alone, and I'm going to be alone for almost three weeks. So home alone, and I hope it's not like the movie, uh, but we'll see. Michael, how about you? <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, three weeks by yourself actually doesn't sound like the worst thing in the world. Um, but my week has been pretty good. I have uh, two young kids, eight years old and six years old, and uh, we had a really good time this week playing a new board game called uh, Ticket to Ride that they really enjoyed. And now we're prepping for you know maybe 12 inches of snow uh, in a day or two, and I think everyone's looking forward to kind of a change of pace. Ticket to Ride is that like uh, after the after the Beatles song, or is it about trains? It's about trains. It's like <laughs> all about building uh, like rail lines between cities in the United States. Um, surprisingly fun. Cool. So let's get started. You know, I, I, I've, I've been a huge fan of common sense media. Uh, it's been around since 2003. Uh, and in my work, I found it to be just an incredible resource for parents, teachers, and all sorts of caregivers. So Michael, can you give us a brief overview of its mission and its audience? Sure. So Common Sense is a nonprofit organization, and we are dedicated to improving the lives of kids and families by providing, you know, trustworthy and independent information um, to help, you know, help families and kids thrive in the 21st century. And we're primarily known for three different things. 
we have Common Sense Media, which is uh, a platform that rates movies, TV shows, video games, apps, and a lot more so that parents can feel good about the media choices they make with their families. There's Common Sense Education, which supports K-12 schools with things that educators need to support the next generation of digital citizens. And we have something called Common Sense Kids Action, which partners with policymakers and other advocates um, to you know, ensure that kids have the opportunity to succeed through, um, through legislation. That is incredible. So, and so we asked you on the show to talk about media literacy and child and adolescent mental health. And we're also curious to hear your thoughts about uh, or related to how young people engage with media and the effects and influence it has on them. So with your long history of research and guiding parents and teachers on how they can help kids navigate the different kinds of media, can you talk a little bit about media literacy and tell us more about what it is? Sure. And so, why it's so important. Absolutely. So the, the word literacy usually describes the ability to read and write, and reading literacy and media literacy have a lot in common. Right? So when you start with reading, you start with recognizing letters, and then you identify words and understanding what words mean. Then readers become writers. And then with more experience, readers and writers develop really strong literacy skills. Now, media literacy is the ability to identify different kinds of media and understand the messages that they're sending. So kids take in a huge amount of information from a wide array of sources. Um, and far beyond just traditional media, like much more than just TV or radio or any of that stuff. Because, um, you know, you have text messages, you have memes, you have viral videos, all kinds of stuff. But media all shares one thing, which is that somebody created it and it was created for a reason, right? And understanding that reason is the basis for media literacy. So somebody whose media literacy is really just someone who's learning how to kind of read media. And I think it's really important now since you know the digital age has made it really easy for anybody to create media you know we don't always know who created something we don't always know why they made something and we definitely don't know always whether something is credible so that makes media literacy you know tricky to learn and teach but something that's definitely essential so one of the things that when parents have asked me um what do you want i think about a certain video game or a certain app or a certain movie. Um, and I say, well, you know, you really should go to Common Sense Media uh, because they have um, reviews and articles. And, you know, it turns out that most of these parents have not sat down and played a video game with their kids or gone to the apps uh, that the kids use, or, and they just don't have a clue. So I say, you know, you can find out a lot. Um, so who writes... And your reviews are terrific, but who writes these reviews in such a balanced and nuanced way so that so that a lot of different opinions uh, about media can be presented? I mean, so how do you guys put that together? Yeah, uh, thank you for the nice compliment. Um, you know, we have a great editorial team that rates a ton of different kinds of media, and it's all based on a developmental rubric that we've developed, right? And that, that rubric that we use is based on the best research we have on how media affects kids in different ways at different ages. Right? We don't treat all kids as if they're some kind of monolith. Um, so we rate media based on both um, age appropriateness. Um, you know, for some digital media, we also rate based on kind of what kinds of learning potential it might have. Um, but we also know that every family and every kid is different. Um, but all families need information to make great media choices. And so we break down the ratings into lots of different kinds of areas. So you know, educational value, 
how much violence is in a piece of media, sexual content, uh, language, um, positive things like, you know, is there positive messaging in a piece of media or positive role modeling, um, good representations. There's uh, really no one size fits all solution for every family. So, you know, people can take what we have and just kind of adjust for themselves. And you, you know, we also have parent reviews and kid reviews. Um, and you can see that people sometimes disagree with us and, and that's okay. Well, I just, just, I was recently interviewed about, uh, how to talk to your kids about climate change and and it's so cool. I went. Uh, the first thing I did was I went to Common Sense Media, and sure enough, there are uh, all sorts of media for kids of different ages about how to present climate change. And you know, I kind of took off on that and and helped the interviewer, you know, know that that's a place where parents can actually go to kind of find out what's appropriate for kids of different ages. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the unique affordances of, of media is that it's a good jumping off point for families to have discussions like that where, you know, it's not always easy to just sit down at the dinner table and be like, okay, we're talking about climate change tonight. You know, <laughs> if you have something that you can react to or talk about an episode or a movie that you watch, um, it provides a more comfortable kind of jumping off point and also kind of gives everybody something um, concrete to latch onto. And we frequently talk about the value of, of talking with media uh, talking about media with your kids as kind of one of the best things you can do to um, help your kids get the most of it and improve their media literacy. So in our line of work as child psychiatrists, we know that certain kids can do fine with certain apps, social media, and games. But then there are other kids that misuse it. And then we do have some kids that are vulnerable, and these become platforms through which they're they're mis mistreated. So what are factors that influence which kids are at higher risk of being bullied or mistreated online? Yeah, this is this is a tough area. Um, and when you look at the research, I mean, one of the things that really stands out at first glance is that there is a very, very high correlation between kids who are cyberbullied and kids who are bullied um, in, in, quote unquote, the, the real world. So um, if you're being bullied in person, you know, that's probably the number one indicator that a child is going to also be bullied online. But, you know, in general, like kids who are perceived as being different, um, kids who are overweight or underweight or have different kinds of um, body types, kids who are depressed or anxious or have low self-esteem, kids who don't have that many friends, um, kids who don't get along with others or you know, maybe seen as like uh, annoying or, or provoking. Um, and depending on the environment, uh, LGBTQ youth and youth with disabilities may also be at increased risk. So common yeah. sense media, acknowledges that parents are really the experts on their own kids. So how do we as parents, based on the reviews, determine which media is appropriate in that? Uh, well, we give an age rating, right? Um, and we also provide a ton of information for parents to be able to make choices for themselves, right? So um, I mentioned earlier, I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, and I, I don't always adhere to the age rating because um, I think, you know, sometimes I'm like, they're ready for this, or sometimes I think this is not going to be a good match for them. Um, but what I, I still value the information that the common sense ratings give me because it gives me some context about whether it's going to be a good match um, for my kids. I mean, like I said earlier, different media is going to affect different kids in different ways. So it's, it's good for parents to have a sense of what something contains so they can at least prepare for you know, a conversation after, you know, especially if there's something questionable or concerning or, or something you just knew that um, you'd want to discuss. 
So let's look at kids. Uh, so parents are always asking, you know, whether a child or a teen is able to critically think about the media that they're watching, yeah. um, uh, whether it's the news or Instagram, TikTok. So how can a parent or teacher uh, help to build the skills at certain developmental ages to critically think about what they're watching and say, no, this is, this is not cool or, or, oh, no, this is really pretty good or I want to get off of this. Because so, we want our kids to actually be able to eventually critically think about you know, the material that they're getting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the first thing to keep in mind here is that this isn't like some on-off switch that you just trigger and kids are able to do it. I mean, this is something that develops over um, a, a lifetime of experience. And we often call it a, we call it media literacy. It's a habit of mind, right? It's something you practice until it becomes more intuitive, more natural. And, you know, when you want to build this up, there are some key questions that you can ask or you can help your kids ask um, when teaching media, media literacy. Like, who created this, right? Was it a company? Was it an individual? And if so, who, who is that individual, right? Maybe it's a comedian, maybe it's an artist, a politician, um, or maybe it's like anonymous, and why do you think it's anonymous, right? So who created this is number one. Another question to get in the habit of asking is, why did they make this? Right? Was it just to inform you of something that happened in the world, right, for like a new story? You know, was it something that was made to change your mind or your behavior, um, like like an opinion essay? Maybe it's just to make you laugh because you saw, you know, this funny meme. Um, or often, you know, in my line of work, because <laughs> when I'm dealing with kids on YouTube, is it something that's meant to get you to buy something, right? Is, is it an ad? Um, another question to get in the habit of is like, who is this message for? Right? Is this for kids? Is it for grownups? Do you think maybe they're trying to like reach girls or boys? Um, and, and why do you think that? And then there's a whole other you know set of questions about like you know what techniques are they being used to to make it something seem credible or believable? Um, you know what details do you think they might be leaving out and why? Uh, how messages are making you feel? Whether others might feel the same way if they were watching the same message. There's, a, there's just a whole load of stuff that you don't have to pepper your kid with all of these questions every time, but maybe one or two of these just to kind of get them into the habit of thinking about like, oh yeah, somebody did make this. I'm like, what did they want me to get out of this? And as kids become more aware of and exposed to news and, and current events, you can apply these steps to, to radio, TV, but also, you know, online information, you know, social media posts and things like that. So these are conversations that parents and kids should be having from early on all the way through teenage, teenagers to young adults, uh, if I get you right. W what about the value of looking at apps and media or games together? Oh, absolutely. And actually, that's one of the kind of main recommendations we make about, you know, how do I support a healthy media environment? So to the extent that parents can either co-view or co-play uh, you know, apps or games with their kids. A, it'll give them an appreciation for what their kids are into, um, but it also serves as a bonding time. Like, you know, let's, let's use technology to bond and, and build relationships. One of the things that we know about child development is just how important relationships are to healthy development. We also know that kids like media, they respond to media, like we should be doing what we can to make sure that that media time is not just a source of conflict as it often is in a, a lot of families, but also a time um, for, for bonding and warmth and conversation. Um, it's not always easy or possible to 
you know, watch everything with your kids or, or play stuff with your kids. And if you can't do that, you know, try to find times and places where you can ask. So like the dinner table is a great place to sit down and A, that's a great time for to put away a device. But also if you want to have a conversation about like, oh, what were you watching? Um, tell me about like a, an episode that you were um, that you were watching. Kids are often very excited to talk about media. If you ask them, what did you do today at school? They may give you a blank stare and you know a mumble of an answer that goes nowhere. But they get very animated talking about like the media that they like, and so that's a really good springboard, um, you know, for using technology uh, for for bonding. So you mentioned conflict, and so a question that we get so often from our patients, from I get all the time from my family members is screen time. It's about screen time. So what's your view on how parents should determine the right amount of screen time for a kid or a young person? Yeah, it's um, it's a tough question. Uh, and especially now where so many kids are still, you know, at home for remote learning or just spending a lot of time at home and don't have a lot of other outlets available to them. Um, I think the advice on this has really been more nuanced than people realize for a while. Um, and I've actually been steering away from talking about screen time to talking more about um, screen quality, both in terms of like what kids are using and also the quality of the, the context of use. So like, you know, are there like conversations, for example, happening, um, or maybe it's happening in an educational setting or something like that. And the reason for that is that screen time by itself doesn't really tell you a lot. Um, you know, there's no reason we should just lump together the, the time a kid spends on a computer because they're doing schoolwork with time they spend playing Fortnite with their friends to time on social media, to chatting on FaceTime, to sending chats. Like all, all these activities are accomplishing different things and satisfying different needs that a child might have. So to say that it all adds up to like some 90 minute threshold and then you have to stop it right there, it, it just doesn't conceptually make a lot of sense. I think one of the better approaches to thinking about time use is to actually just step back and think about the other things that we know are good for kids' development. So for example, you know, we know that it's important that they get a good night's sleep, you know, nutrition is important. We know it's important for kids to be physically active, to be social online and offline, um, you know, to make sure that they're, they're reading and doing homework. Like lots of things that we know from 100 years of child development research are good for kids versus the 15 to 20 years we have on uh, screen use. Um, and I think if your kid is doing, you know, most of the things that we know are good for, for kids, you don't have to worry about counting every single screen minute. And I've been advising parents to really just not to feel too guilty during this time because, A, this is, we're living through a massive cultural shock right now, and counting screen minutes should be pretty low on anybody's list of concerns. But also because, like I said, screen time by itself doesn't actually tell you that much about the quality of what it is that they're doing. Now, having said that, there are kids who are still probably doing it to such an amount that they are starting to crowd out the things that we know are important. And, you know, for those kids, you know, maybe it is important to set up some rules or making sure that there's kind of balance throughout the week, as opposed to like, you know, every day has some set limit. So like, yeah, maybe there's one day where like they're overdoing it, but on other days, you know, you're making sure that they're getting outside and they're in a park or, you know, they're riding bikes or doing the things that we know are important. But if you can kind of establish, you know, what you feel like is a healthier balance during the week, again, not worrying so much about what's happening on um, a day-to-day -day basis. 
Well, we, we need to change our perspective on how we look at screen time. I guess it's not as simplistic as we originally kind of approached it. I don't think so. I, I mean, the, the evidence certainly does not suggest that screen time is the, you know, the, the variable we should be most concerned about. I'd be much more concerned about the, the media choices that, you know, kids are making. So like, you know, if they're watching stuff that's like really heavy and violence or sexual content or stuff that's really age inappropriate, I'd be more concerned about that. Um, and I'd also want to emphasize the, that context of use. So like if a kid watches two hours of, you know, whatever show, but then later on you have a really good conversation with them about what they were watching and it kind of dovetails into like, ooh, maybe we can like get a book that's kind of related to this, then I'm, I'm certainly a lot less worried um, about that kind of use. So, so that's, that, that is a nice segue into an, another issue, and that has to do uh, not just with screen time, but with uh, addiction. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the World Health Organization identified gaming disorder as, an, as, as a form of addiction, kind of like uh, uh, gambling. Uh, uh, the, um, there's a lot of controversy around gaming disorder. So what, what's your view about, about whether or not there is an addictive a component, because parents are worried about not just screen time, but are they truly addicted to the to the media, uh, to the screen, to video games, uh, and um, and is this is this a a valid issue or is this uh, still up in the air? I think the word addiction gets thrown around a lot casually, but isn't often applied in the way that it actually should be when it comes to media use. So often we use the word addiction to describe a certain kind of very focused attention on media and technology, right? And we say, man, I'm just, I'm addicted to checking my Instagram feed or man, I'm so addicted to Game of Thrones or whatever show you happen to be watching. So kids, you know, they might be displaying what looks to be addictive behavior when another, if you just said like, oh, they're just super engaged in doing something or getting to the next level in a game or creating something for TikTok, you know, the word addiction wouldn't necessarily apply as, as neatly. Um, but you are correct in that, you know, the, the World Health Organization has identified gaming disorder as an addictive behavior. Um, I think, you know, what we can tell from the research as it stands so far, true gaming disorder, to the extent that it's really negatively affecting a kid's quality of life in very severe ways, it's probably pretty rare, not non-existent, but probably pretty rare. And, you know, may also be tied to other conditions like depression or, or ADHD. Um, and sometimes what looks like addiction, uh, addiction may really be better categorized as either A, behaviors that parents don't like, or other kinds of problematic behavior, right? Because when something's really addicting, then, you know, like your brain and your body won't let you stop using that thing, even when it's hurting you problematic media use, like it may be causing difficulties, it may be causing some conflict, but, you know, introducing certain kinds of limits or taking on a more balanced approach can help to kind of correct um, problematic behaviors. But like, it, for, you know, if you have real concerns about your kid's behavior and you're noticing like mood changes or, you know, failing grades, um, you know, a real lack of human interaction, then you may want to talk to like a, a pediatrician or a guidance counselor about the possibility of some kind of more serious issue, including gaming addiction. Um, that might be causing those problems. And so what, what are the signs? Um, uh, you know, I mean, even if it's very rare, um, uh, what are the signs so of concern so that parents can kind of know what to worry about? So if your kid is using media so much that 
I would say that it's causing really severe repercussions in other parts of their life. So for example, let's take one kid who's, um, you know, he's playing Fortnite for eight hours a day, but he's playing with his friends, he's super social, his grades are fine, you know, he still reads before he goes to bed at night, he goes out to play, you know, here and there. That's probably not addiction. Again, it's, you might feel uncomfortable with that level of play and maybe it's causing some conflict because you'd rather have them do something else more often, but that's probably not addiction. If you have another kid playing that same eight hours a day and you know they're playing by themselves in their room, they don't want to be social, their grades are falling, they get really unreasonably angry um, when you try to move them to, to something else. Um, you notice kind of other kinds of mood changes, you know, like they seem like they're depressed or sad or just really withdrawn. Um, you know, that might be more of a cause for concern that you'd want to um, talk to a, a pediatrician or some other medical professional about. It's interesting. We don't, we don't, if a kid is playing the piano eight hours a day or working on field hockey eight hours a day or, uh, or reading books eight hours a day to the exclusion of other things, parents aren't, aren't worried about it, even if they're socially isolated and they're using that over other, other forms of, of engagement. But I think, I think you said something that's really important clinically, and that is, um, Look, look at their mood, look at their attitudes, look at how they're, how they're getting along with other people. You know, is their world fulfilled in, in, in larger ways, even if they're doing something a lot? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you have to kind of take a whole kid view of this because kids aren't any just one thing. And if media really is the only thing in that kid's life that they are responding to and they seem very adrift otherwise, like, yes, that might be a, a real issue that you want to address. Um, but I, I, in general, I don't think that describes most kids. So media is such a large part of our society now. And, and another major area of concern and controversy is, is the dangers of social media. How do we determine what dangers are out there? And, and if so, how do we keep our kids safe online? I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about the, the online monitoring that parents do, you know, thinking that they're protecting their kids um, from the dangers of, of media. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there are a couple buckets of dangers and things to watch out for. So like number one would just be like concerns about privacy. And the first step in addressing that is, you know, trying to set up strict privacy settings in, in apps and on websites. So like when you sign on to a new website or app, you know, right from the get go, establish pretty stringent privacy preferences. Um, and I'm not expecting that most kids or parents are reading through every terms of service contract on every app, but it's good to remind kids to be aware of what information they're agreeing to share before they start using an app uh, or a website or some kind of device. And then also, you know, in that privacy bucket is teaching kids to consider the kinds of information they're potentially giving away. Like, so for like younger kids, it might be like, you know, be careful about giving away your address or phone number or birth date. Um, and then for older kids, like, you know, what kinds of photos are you sharing? And is, are things like appropriate? Because you have to remind them that it's not always easy to take back something on, once it's online and texts and photos and things can be, can be forwarded to anyone. So that privacy bucket is number one. You know, another thing I think people get concerned about is like, who, who are kids talking to online? Um, I think there's like a little bit of a myth that teaching kids not to talk to strangers is the best way to keep them safe online. That's kind of true, but I think teaching kids to recognize predatory or unsavory behaviors is even more effective in helping them avoid unwelcome situations. 
Um, so, you know, kids need to be able to know that it's okay to tell people online to, to back off, right? Going beyond stranger danger and teaching them like what kinds of questions are okay. Um, so, you know, asking the question like, where do you live or what are you wearing might not be okay. Um, and definitely teach kids not to go looking for like thrills, you know, online. Um, and then in terms of parental controls, which you just mentioned, I think that's a tricky area. Like every family has to do what's right for them. But in general, I would probably avoid using parental controls without telling your children that you're monitoring them. And, um, and in fact, you should probably just be cautious in general with companies that promise that like, you know, you, they can covertly spy or monitor on your kids because they're really preying on, on parents' fears. Um, I think parental controls sometimes lull parents into thinking that they're fine just because they're, they're using them. But if you focus kind of more on internet safety, um, you know, trying to teach them to be responsible online and respectful online, that's going to be better in the long run than installing parent controls. Because in, in general, like parent controls can really be pretty easily defeated by determined kids. Some parental controls catch too much stuff in their filters, which can make internet searches like, you know, useless. And they also set up this kind of parent versus kid dynamic that sometimes backfires. So in general, I would say like, you know, I think by all means, use parental controls to prevent exposure to age inappropriate stuff. Um, so like, you know, I set up things to prevent, uh, you know, like Google Safe Search or YouTube restricted viewing to make sure that the really lazy stuff stays out of their feed and in their searches. But but don't think that that gets you off the hook. Like you have to continue to talk about what what's responsible or respectful online behavior, set up what the rules and consequences are when they like misbehave. And that conversation, right? You want to keep that dialogue open that if the kid does see something inappropriate or gets into a weird situation, that they feel comfortable talking to you about it, at least until they are able to, um, you know, regulate their own usage and interactions uh, independently. It, it, it reminds me of uh, censorship and prohibition. They don't work. <laughs> we, 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 you know, if you tell them not to do X, Y, or Z, the kids are likely to take the risks and do those kinds of things. So I think what a variation of what you're saying that, that I use clinically is uh, have conversations about what they're doing, and that's probably the most important thing. Um, so um, uh, in general, how would, you how would you help parents determine what the guides and limits are uh, for um, safe use of digital media. In other words, are there different rules for younger kids than mm -hmm. there are for teenagers um, uh, or school-age kids? So, yes, yeah, and there's a couple answers in there. So one is don't just think about limits, right? Think about how you are engaging with media with your kids. You know, that's what I was talking about earlier about keeping that conversation open, using it as a springboard for interaction and learning and making it a, a positive experience. Um, you know, that's quite different than just saying two hours or one hour and letting it go at that. Um, and then should there be different rules for younger kids uh, versus adolescents and teens? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, sometimes people use the analogy of like a driver's license. You know, you gotta give people the, the rules of the road uh, before you can set them safely off onto the highway. So, you know, what you do with a two-year-old should be very different than what you do with a five-year-old, 10-year-old, or 16-year-old. Um, as a parent, you will gradually lose the ability to select the media that your kids can use. You do have a good amount of control over that when they are quite young, and you probably have some more 
control over how much time they do it. But as you are kind of gradually exposing them to the things that they like and that are a good match for where they are developmentally, you have to be instilling those things about like, you know, what are the natural breaking points when you can stop and do something else? And talking about balance and like what happens in your body when you feel like you've used too much. Um, and helping to instill those things so that as they get older and they do get more free reign, that they're able to better self-regulate their, their media use. Um, so that by the time they're 16 or 17 and you know they're on TikTok or they're on Instagram, that they are um, much more comfortable being able to say like, what kinds of interactions they should be having, what they need to be keeping private, um, and you know, making sure that's not getting in the way of of their life. That is a, a complement to their lifestyle. So, um, is there anything that Khadija or I forgot to ask you about, or that we didn't uh, cover that you think, uh, in your uh, experience through Common Sense Media, that would be helpful for uh, for parents? I mean, I think I alluded to this earlier, but I think parents just need to be more forgiving of themselves. Parents hold so much, I think, unreasonable stress around screen time. And when you look at the kind of media effects research that's out there, it's not to say that there aren't some concerns that parents should have, but if you really think about like who your child is, what's age appropriate for them, what they're interested and motivated in, that's you know the child factors. Combine that with the content factors, like you know what's a good piece of media, you know what's high quality, what's educational, um, what's got good representation role models. So you have content and the child, and then also the context of use, the you know how it's being used, conversations that are happening around it. If you can kind of like see where those three circles intersect, right? That's where you're going to see like where the the effects are. And so to the extent that you can kind of balance those things out, I think you're going to have a much more positive experience with media and experience less less conflict and then maybe uh, hopefully less guilt um, around kids' media use. I think that's very helpful. Um, so, um, uh, Khadija, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask, uh, Michael? No, I, I just think this is awesome. You know, this is a lot of helpful information. And as a parent, you know, this th there's a common theme here in terms of we, we know our kids. We have to have conversations continuously and, and we have to do this with them. So that's the best way to do it. And, and what really made me laugh inside was the, the, the monitoring because I experienced both. I experienced them getting around the, the monitoring system, no matter what it was. And I also experienced, <laughs> can you can you put your password in? Because I can't get online for school. I can't get online for this. So it, that that was particularly uh, funny to me. But but I really we really appreciate it. Yeah. So um, uh, this has been terrific, and and I, I hope uh, uh, you'll come back because this is going to. I'm sure this is going to. We always get a lot of questions about uh, media usage, um, and it seems that they blame that everything is blamed. In media, you know, um, Gen Z and uh, millennials are the loneliest generation ever. Lonely, 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 and uh, nobody knows why. But the low-hanging fruit that that many people blame is the use of social media mm -hmm. isolates kids. So, what are your thoughts about 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 that opinion? Because there's no science that I that I get that says that that's true. What are your thoughts about 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 the role of, of of media or digital media in terms of the 
the real spike in loneliness in young people? Um, I mean, it's it's a it's possible, but based on the research that's been done so far, there's not any good causal research that says that you know kids' social media use is causing loneliness or depression or you know other kinds of mental health problems. Um, that's not to say some future study won't be able to do it. Just the measures that they have now and the way they do these studies has not been really adequate to show that. I think so far, the research I've seen actually suggests the opposite might be true, that kids who are lonely or depressed or anxious tend to go online more and use social media in more inappropriate ways. Um, or perhaps it's some kind of feed feedback loop where you have more vulnerable kids who are going online and using media social media in, in poor ways, and that just kind of feeds back into feeling bad about yourself or feeling lonely. Um, it's not that I think that it, it does not have an effect. I think it's really probably just that it's there are certain kids who are more vulnerable. And it's not the case that all kids are, you know, lonely because of their social media use. And with all these questions, it's also probably likely to be multifactorial, right? It's not just the social media use, right? And it has something to also to do with education, with a lack of play in early education, with um, nutrition, with lack of sleep. Uh, you know, one of the interesting articles I read in the last couple months was about how kids actually weren't suffering as much as they had thought during the um, pandemic. And one of the more plausible explanations they had was that kids were getting more sleep and um, they were spending more time with their family. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with social media. Um, so again, like it, it's, it's, possible. And if you know your kid and it seems like their social media use is making them depressed or they seem frequently to feel worse about themselves after using it, then that is a, a time when you want to maybe step in and have that conversation about whether it's time to turn off more or kind of rearrange how they live their social media lives. Um, but I, I don't know if it's the kind of silver bullet solution or answer that, that people are looking for when it comes to those um, rising rates. Well, you just echoed what we say all the time, and that is parents are the experts on their kids and know your kid and know the, know the whole story. Um, so um, this has been great, um, as we typically end. Uh, what struck you in the news this week, Khadija? I'm really excited about the vaccine. That, that's, what, that's what struck me in the news today, how it was turned around in warp speed, and they're, they're giving it out in, in hospitals today. So that was really exciting. What did you find exciting this week, Gene? Well, uh, the vaccine for sure. Um, uh, although, um, uh, I, I hate getting into the politics of things. I mean, you know, I, I just, uh, what, what, what struck me on the, uh, is how important it is for us as a nation to heal heal in terms of COVID, heal in terms of our emotions, heal in terms of um, bridging the big gaps and the anger that's, that's raging in this country. And uh, I, I just hope that, that um, uh, not only will we kind of conquer this, this illness, uh, this, this virus, but that we'll conquer our own um, divisions and heal. How about you, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I echo both of those. Uh, that was great. I sometimes feel very pessimistic about, you know, that healing and whether people will be able to kind of put aside their um, strong differences to be able to kind of look for more of a, a common good. But I, I do hope that the 
kind of level of distress and the kind of heightened outrage can diminish. But in terms of news, I mean, absolutely. Like I was so excited about the vaccine and just kind of watching the the video of people getting the kind of first round of shots. It made me like, you know, strangely emotional in a way that I was not expecting. It just felt like such a um, such an accomplishment and such a signifier of, okay, we're near the, be the beginning of the end of something. And um, so it was really, it was really a nice moment this week in a, in a year that's had not had that many great moments. So, uh, Michael, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that our audience will go to Common Sense Media and use it as a guide to get the latest reviews. Uh, if listeners have comments, questions, thoughts, suggestions, please let us know right here at the Clay Center. Um, and we hope that our conversation will help you have yours. Thanks for listening. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins.